That night, the city burnt, and the mother church of the city burnt with her. And yet the tower and the spire still stand, soaring to the sky, and I feel that's an emblem of the eternal majesty and love of God. Greetings. You are tuned into the Miserable Offenders podcast. Pull up a chair and join the conversation as we seek answers to life's big questions, drawing wisdom from the well of traditional Anglican theology. This is a production of the North American Anglican. Hello and welcome to the Miserable Offenders podcast. My name is Jesse Nigro. I'm your host, and I'm joined here today by Andrew. Hey, Andrew Brazier here. Glad to be on with you, Jesse. And I'm glad to have you. Um, It's been... Good to get to know you around the Anglican conversational circles, and uh, I know you are another person who is interested in Anglican classically understood. Would you say that's about right? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, been my kind of quest the past few years now to really dive into the primary sources and you know read as much as I can when I can on just the historical. Uh, Anglican divines, uh, ranging from the start of the Reformation to uh, through the Caroline period. Absolutely, that's uh, that's where the riches are, I guess you could say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and I guess it wouldn't hurt for us to explain a little bit, maybe to the newcomer, why that would be hmm, so important for Anglicanism, especially these days. Uh, we were talking a little bit before um, we got here about, uh, you said that you like to talk about Anglicanism, how it, not necessarily how it is, but how it ought to be. Yeah, that's right. And it's sad that we have to have that conversation, but I think it's one that needs to be had these days, uh, especially when you have various Anglican jurisdictions who either uh, ape the way of the world and kind of follow the culture, or they simply reinvent themselves into something that is not really uh, rooted in the Anglican formularies. Right. It's, uh, there's, there's a certain sense in which um, Anglicanism attempting to be something else is just kind of nonsensical. Although the narrative has been, well, we can include just about anything within our umbrella. And I think part of uh, the spirit of our podcast is to retrieve sort of the central themes and doctrines of the Anglican Church and draw people with us back towards that Orthodox center. Absolutely. And I think there's a prime opportunity for, uh, for the time that we live in, for those of us who are trying to rediscover the spirit of the classic Anglicanism and trying to look into what did the Anglican divines say about what they believed in and what was their faith in order to try to restore, you know, at least here in North America and hopefully globally, um, the authority of, you know, what Anglicans have believed in and to try to recapture what is our basis, what is kind of the foundation of what we believe in, which is obviously always scripture, but also to go from there instead of this kind of, I don't know how to say it, but kind of this, you know, contemporary phase we find ourselves in where 
you know, we would look to our brothers on the left and the right, you know, the Lutherans, the, the, the Reformed, and uh, other brothers in Christ, and they simply say, well, Anglicans are just whatever they want to be. And it's sad that we've gained that reputation because that's simply not how it's supposed to be and not how it always is across the, uh, the Anglican communion. That's, that's absolutely right. Yeah, we, we do, in fact, have a confession, the 39 Articles. Uh, we, we have, we have long-standing documents that have uh, influenced our, our faith and our belief. And as you said, the foundation is always Scripture. And we also have an appeal to tradition and to right reason. So, so that, sadly, that accusation, as you s- stated earlier, probably does <laughs> um, land pretty heavily or pretty hard on certain modern Anglican jurisdictions. But they don't get to speak for the whole, and they certainly don't get to speak for the, the entirety of the history of Anglican divinity, which is um, kind of a big part of the point that we're trying to make here. And on that note... Um, one thing that we like would like to be doing with this podcast is to find sort of good classical Anglican essays or works that we can read aloud and discuss and decipher and, and sort of determine or discern what we think the, this writer is, is getting right or, or what they, where they might've missed the mark and, Really, um, not to be know-it-alls, but to continue and further and open up this conversation about recovering and uncovering our roots and and that that good foundation of biblical doctrine that is the only foundation on which a healthy church can can thrive. Absolutely well said. It's almost like we need to get our uh, fellow Anglicans to uh, go back to the sources, you know, at Fontes, back to our own sources and back to the uh, sources of Scripture. That's right. That's right. And one one uh, really delightful essay that I encountered a few years ago when I first picked up my copy of More and Cross, which is um, an interesting sort of 20th century compendium of 17th century Anglicanism. The, the, the actual title is Anglicanism. And uh, this, what, what, what the, the volume is, is uh, sort of a categorized by topic, just excerpts from the direct sources of 17th century divines from the Church of England. It's a great resource and one thing that I appreciated when I first picked up the book was reading through the introductory um, literature. And I came across this essay called The Spirit of Anglicanism by Paul Elmer Moore. Um, Paul Elmer Moore is actually known somewhat within uh, the conservative circles as an essayist and a thinker. Um, but I first encountered him uh, as somebody who put together a bunch of 17th century Anglican theology. And uh, this, yeah, this essay, The Spirit of Anglicanism, is really interesting, and uh, we are going to read through it kind of paragraph by paragraph, discuss what we're reading, and uh, we may not agree with everything he says, but I think he'll offer us a great sort of launching board into some, some good conversations about probably some very contemporary issues. 
And Jesse, I know we're going to be reading portions here back and forth. It might help some of the listeners to know uh, where to get a copy of this. Is this publicly available by chance, or is this something they could pick up somewhere to, if they wanted to follow along reading it? It is both, and um, I will post the uh, link. It is available in the public domain. I, I uh, came across a link of it that I'll share with the show. Um, and there is also, if you want a, a physical copy, it is being reprinted currently at Wiffenstock Publishers. So Fantastic. definitely you can get your hands on this book, and if you can't, you can at least get your eyeballs on it if you've got a computer and some internet, So, which is almost as good. Maybe not. Almost. <laughs> and on that note, um, I'm going to start right in on this first paragraph. And we'll see if there's anything interesting worth discussing here. The Spirit of Anglicanism by Paul Elmer Moore. The documents from which this compilation is drawn fall within the period from 1594 to 1691, from which the 17th century will pass as a convenient and sufficiently accurate term. On the earlier of these dates, Hooker published the first four books of his Ecclesiastical Polity, which, in the quiet living of Boscombe, he had written out in memory of his controversy with Travers in the temple. They were intended primarily to be a defense against the servile submission to Geneva that threatened to reduce the English Reformation to a mere echo of the radical Protestantism of the continent. In effect, the finished product went far beyond any such defensive intention. Here first the Anglican Communion was made aware of itself as an independent branch of the Church Universal, neither Roman nor Calvinist, but at once Catholic and Protestant, with a positive doctrine and discipline of its own, and a definite mission on the wide economy of grace. As it has been well said, Hooker was the father of Anglo-Catholic theology, for it was he who laid the foundation upon which the majestic edifice of Caroline Divinity was built. The publication of the Ecclesiastical Polity is thus the given terminus a quo for any compilation designed to illustrate the specific genius of Anglicanism. Andrew, you're, you're, uh, you have a, a background in law. How did I do with that Latin? You're actually asking the wrong person, and oh. I can't tell you how many times people say, well, you, you know Latin, and it's, it's sad because it really uh, shows the state of affairs for legal education. I can see the word, you know, I know what it may mean, but I can't necessarily pronounce it correctly, so I need to uh, bone up with my Latin <laughs> pronunciation oh, <boy>. there. <laughs> maybe, maybe it is a dead language after all. Yeah, maybe. I'm a fraud, Jesse. I'm a fraud. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> hardly, hardly. Well, well, I don't know about you, but I, I am reading that first uh, paragraph through the eyes of some friends I know. All I can think of is shots fired. <laughs> <laughs> I think I know it, what you mean. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, can you imagine some of our Reformed Anglican friends reading this? And uh, I, I imagine um, their their eyes may have gone red with a, with a surprise. And um, 
maybe not entirely unjustified either. There's, I think, yeah. uh, Paul Elmer Moore here um, is maybe making a good point w- while making an unnecessarily, probably inaccurate and bad point. <laughs> How would you put it? I, I would have know. to concur. Yeah, I, I think it's. I would say that. Uh, in the paragraph you just read, if you'd stopped, I know that the listeners can't see it, but if you stopped where about two sentences before the paragraph ends, where he talks about um, the Anglican communion is at once Catholic and Protestant, um, mm-hmm. and then ended there, it would have been all right. But then when he goes on to uh, to opine that Hooker is the father of Anglo-Catholic theology, I think that's where the first shot's fired. <laughs> and yeah. As you know, there's some good work being done right now by... Uh, uh, Brad Littlejohn on um, Hooker. I know that he's written a book and has really done a lot to uh, not necessarily redeem Hooker. He doesn't need to be redeemed, but really to illustrate how Hooker is is firmly in the Protestant camp, um, while also right. showing that to be Protestant is to be Catholic. And to that, I give a hearty amen. Yeah, it, it, there are sort of several corrections being made by scholarly friends and acquaintances of ours that uh that first of all in the the umbrella of reformed quote theology there is a much greater diversity than is maybe popularly understood calvinism if that's even the best term uh is is not just tulip so to speak and Mm -hmm. tulip doesn't always fully apply even um, so to everyone who would be firmly within the reformed camp, and beyond that, uh, you know, there's this statement that uh, Moore makes about the radical Protestantism of the continent, as though the whole continent was this uh, <laughs> raging upheaval. And and if he means just the actual radical Reformation, um, some of these uh, upstart. Sort Anabaptist, of, yeah. Yes, anar- anarchal, a- anarchistic sort of strange movements that were taking place, then, um, then that that would be right. But very often, and and I suppose we'll we'll find out maybe a little more what he may have meant by that statement. Very often, I find that from Anglo Catholics, there's a, there's this idea that the whole Continental Reformation was just radical, and that Anglicanism is was a movement apart from that. Mm-hmm. And I think that if Anglicanism can be called Protestant in any way, and Moore does say that it is at once Catholic and Protestant, then it can't possibly be uh, apart from what was going on in the on the continent. Absolutely. I think it goes, you know, without uh, saying... Well, maybe, maybe it doesn't, but by taking a look at 39 articles, which... I strongly advise anyone interested in Anglicanism, studying Anglicanism, or who is an Anglican, to look at them, to compare it with uh, the Augsburg Confession, to compare it with the confessions from the continent, and to see how much uh, we drew off of both what was going on in the Reformed camp, in the Lutheran camp, and uh, where we also went out on our own and uh, made some, not necessarily modifications, but made some bridges between Catholic thought from the, uh, the early church through the uh, the Protestant Reformation. Absolutely. Yeah, it's not as though we were just copying what was going on uh, with our continental Protestant brothers and sisters, but um, 
and so we did make our own sort of contributions, but it was certainly in conversation with these Absolutely. other divines. Well, on that note, um, how about you take that next paragraph, and we'll see if, if more can, can pull it out and uh, <laughs> get us back on the right track here. <clears throat> For the Terminus Ad Queen, the year 1691 has been chosen as dating the schismatic activity of the non-jurors and is marking a notable break in English ecclesiastical history. As a result of that schism, we see on one side a succession of writers who, in the main, though with some lack of balance, follow the true line of development from Hooker and Laud, but whose place in an exposition of Anglicanism might be challenged on the ground that they can hardly be called members of the National Church. On the other side of the theology of those who continued within the establishment becomes irrelevant to our purpose for another reason. The extrusion of so large a body of the more Catholic elements left the rest of the church for several decades a prey for the rising tide of rationalism and deism, so that the apologetic literature of the Orthodox took, perforce, a new turn. The aim, for instance, of such a work as Bishop Butler's analogy is not so much to define the peculiar position of the Church of England as to defend Christianity against the open or disguised attacks of infidelity. Thus, the special task of the 17th century may be said to have been accomplished by the date 1691. Huh. Another, Jesse, when another you take really... a go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say when you take a look at that paragraph, he obviously makes kind of a turn to his focus on justifying that 1691 day. What do you kind of gather from it? Yeah, um, I mean it's very interesting. I think in some way, you know, whenever you're doing history, sometimes dates you just have to use them as arbitrary <laughs> limitations so that you can limit your focus and, and actually um, say something meaningful about <laughs> a, a particular time period. Otherwise, you're just overwhelmed with information. So so I, I think that maybe this goes beyond, a little bit beyond arbitrary. He at least gives a justification for, for that, giving that day, and I think it's a decent one. Um, and I, I definitely think it's, uh, it's sort of interesting, this statement that he makes that sort of the Catholic elements being extruded, as he says, uh, um, from the church gave rise to rationalism and deism. Does that sound, uh, sort of historically accurate to you or what do you well, think? Well, I note that he... It's completely silent on the great rejection of the uh, Puritans from the uh, Church of England. And <laughs> right. It seems um, very obvious that in his in his partisanship, which we all have our, you know, our vices and our uh, the things that we enjoy that makes us partisans in one way or the other. But that's a notable omission uh, coming from history at, at around the same time. In the uh, 1660s, as I recall, the uh, great ejection occurring to where the uh, our Puritan brothers and sisters were thrown out of the established church, and then only later did the non-jurors, still within about a generation, uh, split off. Uh, really, not even due to. Well, I say that I was going to say not due to theological reasons, but there were theological reasons. But really, more to uh, the reason of the loyalty they had to the uh, to the king, King um, James, if I recall, or no, Charles II. I'm probably getting my, my kings wrong, but anyway, there is a notable omission there as to the uh, the great ejection of the Puritans. Yeah, um, and that's, again, I think you're right, just sort of him, him showing his uh, his partisanship. 
there's he definitely wants us to see right or wrong the true line as he says of development from hooker and laud to be uh the essence of what he said calls the national church and that is a claim that can be contested it I, it seems to me that he sees the this entire volume as a um, backing up of that claim. And so it, it seems to me also that it really depends on who or what you think Hooker or Laud were actually up to. <laughs> will have a lot to do with what you make of this claim. If you think that Hooker and Laud were proto-Anglo-Catholics, then um, it means one thing. If you see Hooker as a sort of orthodox, reformed divine, as many people I know do, it could mean a completely different thing. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, on that note, let's uh, let's keep trucking here and uh, and see what what uh, he has to say under the subheading Roman numeral one. Within this period of nearly a hundred years, a considerable diversity of opinion may be discovered among admittedly Anglican writers on points of doctrine and discipline, and something of that uncertainty may be felt in the selections here brought together. England, it is important to remember, did not produce at that time, and indeed has never produced, a single theologian to whom appeal can be made for a final sentence in disputed questions, as the Germans could appeal to Luther and the Presbyterians to Calvin. Nor has she any such ultimate court of authority as the Counter-Reformation possess in the Council of Trent. Possibly Hooker, had he written at the conclusion of our century, might have summed up the scattered thought of his predecessors in a quasi-definitive form, but that is conjecture, and as a matter of fact, no such legislator did appear. Of this condition, the apologists of the age were well aware. They could even turn it into a boast, as when Chillingworth declared proudly that we call no man master on the earth. Um, very, that's an interesting point that I think is um, worth considering. Um, there is, it, it is true to say that Anglicans or Episcopalians or Church of England, uh, members of the Church of England don't call themselves Cranmerians or Hookerians. What do you think of that, Andrew? You know, I think it's a point worth making, and I know that'll kind of rub some of my, um, brethren on uh, the reform side a little bit raw, but, uh, I think it's good that we don't have a single authority, um, in person form that we have to look to. Now, that being said, I have to defend my, my Lutheran uh, friends because I know they'll immediately say, now, wait a second, we don't just look to Luther for everything. Uh, they, of course, have the uh, formula of Concord that they look to. Um, so I think we're kind of in good company with the Lutherans in that we have uh, a confession looking at the 39 articles, and we also can look at the historical figures of Anglicanism to see what's in their writings, to see what was in their mind when they were doing the English Reformation to establish the Church of England. And while there's certainly a diversity of opinion on some points of doctrine, I do disagree with him here um, that there was not an overall 
broad Reformed Catholic emphasis within the Church of England, and that really some of the disputes during this time period at least, not always, but a lot of times it was really a, a family spat more than a truly full partisan uh, battle between two competing uh, doctrines or uh, ideologies. Sure. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting the way he kind of talks about this this particular point of not not having a single person or court, as he refers to the Council of Trent. Um, and and you're, you're right to point out that the Lutherans would object. I mean, even even Luther, I believe, was quoted saying that uh, you know don't don't name this church after me. Right, and and in in fact, um, the tradition is called Lutheran, and in America we have the Lutheran churches, but in Germany it's the Evangelical Church, right? Absolutely. So, yeah, um, there there is a there is that sort of slight difference, but maybe maybe I guess the best way to say it is that it's not so mu- as big a difference as maybe he'd like us to think. Um, and while we can't pin the English Reformation on, on a single person quite as heavily as these other traditions can, um, we have confessions just like they do, and we've got the people who were involved in writing them, <laughs> and, and the people who were involved in uh, determining what these confessions meant for the first 100 years afterwards, which is more or less the period that he's talking about. Absolutely. And having the Declaration, the King's Declaration, in front of the 39 Articles even provides kind of a further guidance as to how to understand uh, and necessarily interpret those articles. Not to mention, I I like to look back to the uh, 1604 Canon Law um, for the Church of England to kind of get a a bit of a taste in which uh, the Church of England was uh, known to be, uh, you know, quote-unquote Calvinist at that time, and yet it still has throughout those canons a uh, healthy reference to uh, to teach no doctrine contrary to that of the uh, ancient fathers referencing the uh, patristic age. Right. Yeah, I think any anytime you have some sort of document that's uh, confessional or constitutional, if you will, you're always going to have a tradition of interpretation that goes along with it. And um, to say that this era was not engaged in that, I think would be a mistake. Um, Although it might be correct to say that unlike some of these other churches, the Church of England did not sort of come up with a robust tradition of interpretation. Certainly nothing comparable to the Formula of Concord, where certain uh, sort of, you know, challenging sects within the Lutheran Church were sort of excluded say no really it's the the Gnesio Lutherans get this right and we're going to put it in stone and that debate has been bam settled right so I I think there's there is at least a certain sense um, as you said that the King's Declaration sort of um, rather than spell out every debate and have a settled opinion on it actually makes an appeal the other way within reason um, that certain debates ought to be left to the the conscience of the churchman insofar as um, he is 
willfully intending to follow the 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 letter of the 39 articles does that sound right to you yeah i would agree with that wholeheartedly i think that's that's the brilliance in uh the english reformation you know and it's at its best when we're trying to uh truly be anglicans and to follow our formularies that we have a uh, a healthy um body of teaching uh that we can ground ourselves in uh that shows ourselves to be uh, protestant while also being catholic and also giving the, the average layman the ability to see what is it that we believe and where we're silent on we uh, still point to look at the history the tradition and the reason of the church catholic while also reminding ourselves that we're also firmly within the protestant camp so no need to define that which has not been debated uh, by the church <laughs> uh, catholic sure absolutely well, let's uh, let's move on to uh, diversity of opinion here and uh, see if he kind of spells out some of these same themes. <clears throat> diversity of opinion and diffusion of authority are patent on the surface of the Caroline literature. But withal, an attentive student of the whole movement will be more impressed by the unity within the variety and by steady flow of the current beneath all the surface eddies towards a def- definite goal. What we have to look for in the ecclesiastical literature of England is not so much finality as direction. And if this implies a degree of inconsistency among those groping for the way, such pliancy of mind in approaching the mysteries of revelation may prove safer than premature fixation. The finished system of Calvin fell into ruins as soon as a single flaw was detected in his chain of logic and a single discrepancy between fact and theory may bring the fundamentalism of Rome to the same doom. In Aubrey de Vere's account of his conversion to Rome, there is a passage that bears on this point. Carlyle, he says, was one of those who gave me the most curious form of warning. I had written over here to tell you not to do that thing. You were born free. Do not go into that hole. I answered, but you used always to tell me that the Roman Catholic Church was the only Christian body that was consistent and could defend her position. He replied, And so I say still, but the Church of England is much better notwithstanding, because her face is turned in the right direction. The word right may be a begging of the question, but it was in establishing a certain direction and in avoiding a premature fixation that Anglican theology in its formative period showed its once its character and wisdom and its underlying consistency. Hmm an interesting antidote he throws in there yeah um interesting claims made about both calvin and the uh roman catholic church absolutely it's kind of a a two-way uh <laughs> street he went on and offending both sides of uh <laughs> Protestantism right and uh the roman catholic church there which i i find is a pretty pretty common move from anglo-catholicism uh mm-hmm. to sort of uh, look both ways and and punch, <laughs> so to speak. And you know, it's interesting. I think that first of all, to say that the Finnish system of Calvin fall, fell into ruins as soon as a single flaw was detected in its chain of logic. First of all, um, Again, I think the the reformed world just contains a lot more diversity than than just what Calvin's institutes uh, have have declared, and so that that seemed that strikes me as a statement that 
it may be true of Calvin if you f- believe that you found your single flaw of, lo- of logic in the or in the chain of logic, but um, it certainly wouldn't be true of the Reformed world. And it, and it kind of shows to me that, like a lot of guys of this sort of um, perspective and maybe from this time period, there's just sort of a general ignorance of Reformed thought. I mean, that's just kind of how it comes across to me. Um, not, it certainly sounds not, like it. I mean, yeah. especially, he doesn't identify what is this single discrepancy between fact and theory uh, detected in the chain of logic. And uh, one can only assume at this point, I don't know if he's referencing really Theodore Beza's kind of taking Calvin's thoughts and then coming up with the uh, what's commonly called the golden chain of salvation, of uh, predestination and election that ultimately leads to salvation, but it's interesting that he simply says there's a, a flaw and doesn't mention what that flaw may be. Mm-hmm. Ignores the rest of uh, of Protestant thought, Reformed thought, and even Lutheran thought for that matter, and then <laughs> takes a stab at going after Rome. Although, he does make a good point about Rome, but it's still a very broad swipe right. at them. Well, and the interesting thing about that that I will say is that um, there's a there's an essay by uh, J.I. Packer on Anglican comprehensiveness, where he actually, in a way, makes the same point um, as a as a praiseworthy uh, feature of Calvinism and Roman Catholicism. He says that um, the, they are the two. Only, the only two systems in Christian thought that are completely consistent. And so, mm-hmm. in, in his mind, this sort of complete consistency, um, so-called, you know, that uh, more, more believes can take down the whole thing if you find one sort of chink in the armor. Uh, but in, in Packer's mind, this just means that these are the serious Christ- forms of Christianity worth taking seriously yeah worth actually mm-hmm. considering so it's kind of funny that he makes a similar point but in the opposite direction <laughs> but yeah that was that is interesting and we also kind of get some some comments about caroline literature um not having defined everything in this way that he sees as sort of a negative trait of Calvinism and Roman Catholicism, but he does believe that they pointed in a direction and that their minor discrepancies along the way can be forgiven for offering a good direction that maybe leaves some questions open. And, uh, and I think this kind of, I think it really kind of, you know, makes one realize that you have to look at these primary sources because we live in such an age as you know the soundbite of uh, memes not even the soundbite anymore you know just mm. make it into a meme and you can make your point and move on with it and so much of what is described as Calvinism uh, is oversimplified you know to the uh, really to the shame of you know my brothers who are Calvinists and who uh, have varying views within Calvinism itself not to mention the broader, like you said earlier, Jesse, of Reformed thought. That there is more than just what Calvin and Beza uh, said when it comes to Reformed thought, uh, and to the exclusion of, of what uh, Lutheran thought is, much less to the unique, unique positions of uh, the Reformers in England, and uh, when they hammered out the Church of England, what they were thinking. And I think that 
to simply make two sound bites of, you know, Calvin has an issue in his system, Rome has an issue in their system, and then voila, here's the Church of England to, to kind of fill in the gap. Yeah. Right. As much as I'm a loyal churchman, it oversimplifies positions and really ignores the uh, the true nature of, uh, of what happened during that time period and uh, what those respective uh, systems believe. Right, I agree. Um, and if, if it helps, I can even throw my cards on the table and say I am personally not a Calvinist, although I think that Calvinism has been a respectable strain within the Catholic, or I would say uh, sort of traditional Reformed Catholic views of the Anglican Church. And yet, I really don't want to see my Calvinist friends misrepresented. And I don't, I don't, I don't want to say that um, Moore is doing that on purpose. I, I think that it's probably more, more innocent than that. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, um, there, there's no, I don't, I don't gain any self-assurance if I know I've, I've created a straw man in order only to uh, defeat it. You know what I mean? I, I just don't. Absolutely. I, that doesn't help me sleep better at night. It, it, I'll, I will know I've been dishonest. And so the fact that we live in the age that we do it, which is actually, I think, Andrew, incredible that we live in this age when so much scholarly work is being done in the 16th and 17th century in um, Protestant and, and Catholic world. And, you know, so many documents are being translated into English for the first time and I mean it's a very exciting time and um, all of the Richard Hooker scholarship that's going on is great so you know we can be thankful I think for having a perspective that Paul Elmer Moore maybe just didn't have available to him at the time I think that's very fair that's good to point out and especially like you said kind of the time we live in which the scholarship is being renewed for these uh, you know, great writers, so that we can read once again uh, in our own language what their thought was, uh, what led them to do what they did, and, and what kind of fleshes out their theology a little bit better. Uh, and we need it more now than ever, since we're kind of in a time in which you can call yourself Anglican or Christian for that matter, and then have any set of beliefs that are, in fact, inconsistent with, you know, mere Christianity or with uh, mere Anglicanism for that matter. Hmm. Yeah, very good point. Um, wow, yeah, and that not that the case in some of these liberalizing jurisdictions where <laughs> it, not only have they departed from what Anglicanism teaches, um, but they've gone to the root of the foundation of what we teach, which is sacred scripture, and they've departed from mere Christianity in, in so many important ways. I mean, both are conversations worth having and hopefully ones that we will have on the show, but... Um, boy, it's hard to know when to start sometimes. (laughs) Absolutely. And I know that uh, it may seem like we've taken some pot shots against Anglo-Catholics, but that being said, I kind of throw my cards on the table, as you said. You know, I'm kind of more of an old high churchman. Uh, Really, Mm -hmm. I look forward to, uh, I look look up to, I should say, uh, Bishop Peter Robinson, who is uh, the presiding bishop over with the uh, United Episcopal Church of North America. He's done fantastic work on what is an old high churchman. And it is still solidly within the Reformed camp, but not always uh, in the Calvinist camp. But a lot of times is in the Calvinist camp. And so I think that 
to those Anglo-Catholic uh, brothers and sisters who I know who are really trying to recapture more of the patristic age, to that I respect. And uh, there's a lot of common ground that these Anglican camps and families have with each other. And we can come to the same table and, and talk with each other. And we need to, considering how many revisionists are out there trying to reformat Anglicanism into something it never was, or simply steer it away into what the culture wants us to be, which is quite frankly anti-Christian and uh, not the Christian religion at all. Right. I couldn't agree more with you. Um, first of all, yes, I agree. Archbishop Robinson's blog, The Old High Churchman, is is great reading. Um, you can go back for years and find high-quality uh, posts there. Um, and you're right, the... Uh, there, there is sort of this important distinction to be made about what a, what a high churchman is, but between evangelicals and Anglo-Catholics, there's actually been a lot of unity on, on what constitutes mere Christianity and biblical Christianity, and these are the two parties that share the most when it comes to being a bulwark against uh, liberalization, secularization, and frankly, just people who would like to turn the church into a worldly institution. Um, and on that note, I think that we have covered some great ground today. And uh, maybe we should uh, call this a good stopping point. What do you say? I think that's good. I think it was a, a good start. And hopefully listeners kind of appreciated us kind of going back and forth on what we think about the text i really encourage everyone uh, who can get their hands on it either in physical copy or online to to take a look over it you know uh, read it with us and, and kind of digest it and of course form your own opinions um hopefully this conversation between jesse and me will uh continue and will help you know edify the discussion of uh, what is classical anglicanism that's right, absolutely, and and feel free to share your thoughts with us. Um, you can go to the North American Anglican website where you'll be able to find this podcast, uh, particular episodes, and I, I will try to include in the show notes um, some links where you can find the book yourself and get your hands on it. Well, thank you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure, and I look forward to meeting with you again and continuing our discussion of The Spirit of Anglicanism by Paul Elmer Moore. Thank you, Jesse. Have a good week. You too. Bye. It was the spirit of our forefathers that built that grand building. I believe that that spirit is with us still and will help us to, to rebuild it one day when we and suffered a while, a little longer. Build it again today to the glory of, of Jesus Christ. Miserable Offenders is a production of the North American Anglican. Learn more at N-O-R-T-H-A-M Anglican.com.